So let me ask you a question. Risk retention groups can be very helpful in terms of mitigating risk for professional liability and, and other types of risk. Um, but are they typically rated? Are they rated by AM Best? Uh, and if not, how, how do you assess whether they will be around to cover the risk? Because I know they're, they're frequently very attractive to healthcare professionals to solve a particular problem, particularly when coverage may be unavailable or unaffordable. Yeah, so a risk retention group can be rated um, by AM Best. So just because they're a risk retention group doesn't mean that they're not rated. Um, and the, the insurance company itself has the choice to go through that process. Hmm. So oftentimes when they're not rated, they've chosen not to be rated. Um, and it's because maybe that they only want to be rated if they know they can get an A minus or better by A and best. Who doesn't? Now, exactly. Right. <laughs> And so you you know if you don't want to be rated and get a C, <laughs> so, exactly. Um, you got to pay to play though, right? Right. So there's other rating basis. Um, Demotech is another one in our industry um, that um, you know does those ratings uh, for for insurance companies. So you really want to just go look at their financials. You know what what's their total um, written premium? Uh, what are their assets? You know, what's their surplus? Um, and with a risk retention group in general, you're going to be an owner in the company. By, by nature of the company, uh, to purchase insurance, you have to also uh, purchase stock in the company and you become a, a policyholder owner, um, if you will. And so there are advantages to that in that, you know, you're, you're typically purchasing coverage with um, other insurers that are like yourself. And, and since you're a business owner, uh, uh, owner of the policy, uh, of the company, excuse me, um, then they treat you a little better. I mean, the service can be um, tremendously better because as a, as a policyholder owner of the company, you know, you're, they have a fiduciary responsibility to you, not to, not to Wall Street or some other third party investors. Um, so there can be some real advantages to looking at those options. Um, but you're right. You want to make sure that they have um, the right, you know, right amount of surplus uh, to to survive. Um, yeah, part of it's finding the right balance, which is everybody's looking for the right price. But you want to make sure that the risk is covered at the right time for the amount that you think will be covered, because the last thing you want after a risk is incurred to be surprised. Right. That would be an ugly right. So with a carrier, if you're looking at their financials and they, you know, they have five million in premium total and um, they're not rated and there's not much there and uh, in assets and surplus, uh, you know, and you're looking for coverage, that that may not be where you want to purchase uh, if you're looking for sleep at night coverage. You know, if you if you're required to purchase the coverage, oftentimes we'll we'll get phone calls that just say, "Listen, I'm required by contract to have this coverage in place, and um, I need it to be as cheap as possible." Um, because we are understanding that as a as a business owner, you know, you have to you have to weigh you know the cost versus the risk, and you can't insure everything. Um, 
So um, sometimes, you know, you do have to sort of start on a more of a beginner plan, uh, so to speak, just to, to have some coverage and to fulfill your contractual obligation to, you know, some third party that wants that certificate of insurance in place. So we take, you know, when I'm talking to my, uh, my clients, we're taking all these things into consideration. We're obviously going to recommend, you know, a carrier that has a, has a great rating, great financials. Uh, we're we're going to try to explain the coverages as much you know as much as we possibly can, so the client has an understanding of what's covered and what's not, and um, what the retentions or deductibles are, um, so they don't um, they're not surprised by that um, in the event of a claim. And um, we go, we take them through that process of understanding. I think that that education would be helpful. Because um, frequently when you make the purchase, it's one and done, and you don't know whether you have coverage for a particular risk. I mean, we've, we've touched on the challenges related to ransomware. We've touched on the challenges related to privacy violations, um, related to a breach in your system. But we've had several clients recently who have had issues that were cyber mediated. Let me just describe them to you because it does look like something that can be covered by a cyber policy. In this particular case, um, this doctor had excellent policies and procedures in place before posting any before and after photos of their surgical work onto the internet. Um, the photos are designed as marketing material, so it requires very formal HIPAA authorizations from the patient to post it up onto the internet and in their brochures and so on and so forth. But in this one particular case, uh, I think the surgeon had done several procedures on a particular uh, patient. And in this particular case, somebody who worked in their office, um, going against the procedures and policies actually posted um, before and after pictures of this patient who found out about it and called the practice livid and it wasn't clear that that person could even be identified but their pictures were up there they responded very quickly by saying uh, sorry that employee doesn't work any longer not sure how this happened uh, but they're down it was it wasn't even up for a few minutes they were able to identify how few people had even seen it um but this i mean it it seems like um this is different from a hacking episode with a hacking episode you've got a third party with malicious intent coming in to create some badness in this particular case it was arguably a negligent act or just something that nobody intended and maybe the individual who posted it thought that they had authorization i've got another client right now who um, mm -hmm. had verbal authorization from a happy patient who eventually became an unhappy patient uh, with pictures on the internet again before and after pictures used as marketing material and they're trying to argue to the patient hey look we we had your verbal approval and to me a hip authorization needs to be signed and in the chart because memories fade and while the patient may have intended to allow this to go up in the internet. Certainly at the time of this ugly phone call, they didn't want it up there. And I think they were alluding to the fact that, hey, I'm going to sue you. And they start off by saying, I'm going to sue you through HIPAA. You can't sue through HIPAA, but they can certainly create a problem 
with HIPAA, but they can get a privacy attorney to see you in state court. HIPAA is a federal law, but you can certainly access state law to file a lawsuit. But I guess the question I have for you, do media liability um, writers in cyber policies, do they cover this type of stuff where by negligence, um, there was a unauthorized disclosure of protected health information? Yes, I think I'm glad you clarified the negligence. Anything you do intentionally is typically excluded under insurance policy. So if it's an intentional act, you know, for some malicious purpose, you know, that would that wouldn't be covered. But um, the, the cyber policy, as I mentioned, it's a it, cyber is dy a dynamic uh, insurance policy in a static industry, and so typical insurance policies will have coverages that are, you know, a, a policy language may be 20 to 30 pages of, of statements and declarations and definitions. And over half of a policy, and then when, you, when we look at cyber management liability, employment practices liability, and, and those types of uh, uh, sort of management liability and cyber policies often can be 50 to 100 pages long. And within those policy documents, they a third of it could be what they're not covering. <laughs> and that's what we love to do in the industry, or at least insurance carriers love to do. They say, hey, here's cyber coverage. We're not covering general liability. We're not covering professional liability for medical malpractice purposes. We're not covering slip and falls. You know, so they have to, and the reason they have to do that is, as you know, in our 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 world is at least in the United States is you don't have to be guilty to be sued. It's a very litigious society. So you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have committed any wrongful act whatsoever for someone to want to sue you for something. And as you go on out and purchase purchasing insurance coverage, which is a promise to pay when these things go wrong, um, those insurance companies want to get really hyper-focused on what's covered and what's not uh, because they really want to take your dollar towards what they're planning on covering, um, which is not general liability, not employment practices, but all the things. And then within cyber, you know, they, they'll further, you know, whittle it down into what they are and are not covering. So the long-winded answer to your question is you, the best, sort of the best-in-class cyber carriers will list out what they're covering for both your first parties and your third-party type damages. And the third parties are when someone's suing you for uh, you know some sort of damages, and in this this case it would be um, the patient that didn't like their picture up on the internet and didn't approve that be um, up there, uh, and they're suing for for you know basically a media liability claim. And the the best in class carriers have have it will have it listed right there on the the coverage terms. This is what we're covering under third-party coverages, and they'll list the, you know, the network and security and privacy breaches that we've talked a lot of, about, the regulatory investigations and fines that, that come after a breach, and then media liability is always listed right there, um, you know, one of the third or fourth things that are mentioned, as well as you know, the overall expenses associated with, um, with these breaches. So to answer your question is, not always are they covered, um, but they can be if you're with the right carrier. So let me ask you this. We um, recently posted, I don't know if we've, we've released it yet or not, 
it was a list of some HIPAA problems on the wall of shame from the Office of Civil Rights for Health and Human Services. And one of them was a dentist who in, oh God, it was certainly over five years ago where a patient posted a nasty review on Google and the doctor responded by releasing protected health information. They outed the patient by their name. They described the other problems that the patient had that were not in the review itself. And I think this just wasn't remedied and the patient ended up filing a complaint to Office of Civil Rights. So there was a little bit of back and forth. And um, I, I think what the Office of Civil Rights was alluding to was you've, you've done bad, please take down your response. Now I will fast forward and tell you that that response that the dentist posted is still viewable today. It's still view, view, viewable today in 2022. Wow. So the Office of uh, Civil Rights was not able to get its point across. But anyway, this was, I think they filed an action against the practice. Um, they, they fined the practice, then filed another action stating that the penalty was not considered overly um, uh, onerous in a way to shut the practice down. So there was litigation involved and the dentist never even showed up. I mean, essentially just folded. But I, I wanna say that there was a fine to the tune of tens of thousands uh, of dollars. And I don't know whether that would potentially be covered. I mean, at, at the end of the day, the, the dentist was not particularly responsive to the Office of Civil Rights, but certainly the, the early salvos likely would have been covered um, or would it have been because it, I mean, there's a fine line between intentional and negligent behavior. Um, any thoughts on that? You know, I, mean, I know you're not a claims adjuster yeah, for, yeah. for, for the cyber carrier. Well, any sort of fine would have to come from a, um, you know, a covered claim. And so our covered incident that would trigger a claim within the policy if it's something that's done intentionally, I think there's typically language in a policy that would um, try to exclude um, that coverage of, a, of an intentional act. And I think like you mentioned, just a response on Google, um, the response itself you know, may not have been intentionally releasing the, the, the PHI, but the, the lack of responsiveness to the, you know, that please take this down, um, or we're going to sue you and we're going to find you. I think that, in, in my mind, becomes a pretty uh, intentional um, act. So I would say in terms of insurance coverage, you know, I, I don't know that that doctor would be uh, probably expecting to be covered by his, his cyber policy for any fines or lawsuits. You know, and nothing else, he was probably non-cooperative at that point. And right. non-cooperation is considered the kiss of death in terms of getting an insurance claim coverage. You have to at least do what is asked of, reasonably asked of you in a, in a covered case. Absolutely. So let me add one more bucket to the media liability because we have had um, more than one client with this problem. So what happened? Well, the default assumption is that if there's an image on the internet of a patient receiving a procedure, for example, and it's on the internet, that it's fair game, that anything on the internet, your webmaster can just take a screenshot and now use it in your advertising. 
And so in this one particular case, um, a, um, a practice was having some type of spe uh, special regarding fillers or Botox. I don't know what it was. And in terms of the offering that they were making uh, on Instagram, their webmaster took a screenshot of another practice's Instagram account and their ad. So instead of having to use their own patient and get their own permissions, they just took a shortcut and found another practice's patient on there and they screenshot it, stuck it on their ad, uh, in their Instagram ad and shot it out to, you know, tens of thousands of people. And then on a Friday afternoon at 5.05 PM, they received a, uh, a letter from a plaintiff's attorney talking about a copyright violation. So this wasn't even a, a privacy breach. Um, this was discussed as a copyright violation, which can get quite expensive. The argument being that the practice, the first practice, owned the copyright to that image of a patient receiving either filler or Botox, I can't recall exactly which. And they said, you didn't have our permission to do that. And we have registered that as a copyright with the Library of Congress. And let's talk briefly about the the statutory penalties associated with this, which are um, which are eye raising and throat clearing. Um, but why don't we settle this properly? Just write us a check for fifty thousand dollars, and we'll go away. And okay. um, you know, I think the first uh, comment was, "Hey, it was on the internet. I thought anybody can copy anything on the internet." And then number two was. What am I supposed to do now? I mean, it sounded like he felt like he was being extorted when at the end of the day, he didn't have proper policies and procedures in place to prevent, you know, images being taken from anywhere other than, you know, Creative Commons or from which, you know, or a collection of their own pictures to shoot out. But I, I did see that some media liability um, writers will actually cover that, which would be which, which would certainly be reassuring. Yeah, they would cover that. And it sounds like the, the claim itself in the, in the grand scheme of claims is, is relatively small. And so uh, the importance of the insurance policy would be you know, to, to have the uh, resources of the insurance carrier, which is they would assign a defense counsel and a claims adjuster and provide consulting to your client in order to um, respond to this copyright infringement lawsuit you know, they'd get involved so that they can your client can go back to doing business and not be you know, attempting to respond to it themselves and and you know, taking the time away uh, that it, it potentially may take to go hire an attorney or negotiate the settlement themselves um, and then you know with as far as the coverage itself oftentimes these policies at least cyber policies will have uh, deductibles and those deductibles can range from 2,500 up to a hundred thousand um, dollars. So mm -hmm. something uh, like this, a copyright claim, could be a, a, a claim that is going that the the client's going to pay for out of pocket in terms of the costs associated with that settlement. But again, they would have the the resources of the of the defense team and the and the claims adjuster and the uh, you know the claims team of of an insurance company. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. I think the biggest fear that people have is that if they have to interact directly 
with a plaintiff attorney, they don't have any leverage. And if they have to go out and hire their own attorney to do that, they're already dealing with a major problem. So even when you win, you lose. I've certainly, right. not related to copyright claims, but employment practice liability coverage, I've seen legal fees where the doctor won. So the doctor won these, these this particular case where they had to cough up anywhere between 50, 75, and $100,000 to get a win. And right. that doesn't seem like a big win. It just seems like they lost less. So having Absolutely. that type of coverage in place is, seems like it would be rather helpful. Well, to that point, you'll want to know whether those deductible or retention amounts are um, for indemnity claims only or defense and expense and indemnity. So if it's indemnity only, the, the insured would only have to pay the deductible if there is an actual settlement. So if they lost, if they paid a claim, um, then the, the deductible would apply. But in, in the case you just mentioned, if they um, if they have an indemnity only deductible and you win, uh, then they actually don't have to pay anything for the use of the insurance policy, you know, and underneath that dedu deductible. Yeah, we're gonna change gear. We're running out of time, but I wanna pick your brain on something that's happening in the professional liability world. And unfairly, I just brought it up to you um, <laughs> within the hour. Um, and the only reason I brought it up within the hour is because with my finger to the pulse, I only learned about it recently too. And this is an evolving landscape in our most populated state, namely California. And it's often said, so goes California goes the rest of the country. But California for decades, I mean, since the 1970s has had in place substantive tort reform. So what do I mean by that? I just mean that it was much more challenging to sue a healthcare provider for negligence. Um, um, number one, the statute of limitations is short. It's one year. And that's amongst, that's about as short as it gets anywhere in the country. Number two, and something which helped keep has kept professional liability premiums modest and low, particularly for the size of the state, is a cap on non-economic damages, a cap on pain and suffering. So just briefly, economic damages are those things that can be easily measured, such as lost wages, um, medical bills that have been incurred, and a um, a care plan for future medical costs. Those are things that you can actually put into line items on a spreadsheet. We can disagree about them, but um, at the very least, I think we, we can agree that they can be articulated. The non-economic damages are those that are much fuzzier, pain and suffering. And the rationale behind giving money for pain and suffering is that not everybody has a job. Not everybody incurs lost wages. So for example, um, an eight-year-old who is injured through negligence presumably doesn't have a job, at least not in the U.S. And um, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who's 84 presumably doesn't have a job. If you don't have a job, you don't have lost wages. And so this was a way to kind of level the playing field and allow some type of recovery for those who otherwise may get shortchanged with actual damages with actual economic damages. So the, the cap on this this fuzzy number or this fuzzy recovery 
non-economic damages in California for decades has been $250,000. And that's probably about as good as it gets in the country. There are several other states that have that. Texas implemented something similar to that uh, approximately 20 years ago by constitutional amendment. And it had the predictable effect of decreasing or stabilizing um, professional liability premiums and attracting more doctors to the state. Um, 20 years ago, doctors were leaving the state. There were whole areas of the state that didn't have OB-GYN coverage, for example. Texas is a large state. There were large counties that had not a single OB-GYN provider, but since they implemented the constitutional amendment with a cap on pain and suffering, um, the, the turnstiles changed. Whereas people were leaving before people were coming in, physicians were coming in. So California has really never had a problem in terms of attracting physicians, at least if they're weighing the notion of professional liability. Its landscape has always been better than New York, better than Florida, and the premiums have been lower. Now, fast forward, and but by the way, every so many years, the plaintiff's bar would make a pitch to upend these caps, to put forth a referendum to see whether the public is okay with overturning these caps and modernizing that. And arguably, you can see the case. If something has been static for close to 40 years, you know, you can certainly imagine why it would use or could use an update. So anyway, much to my surprise, um, I was reading a news blurb that said that there was supposed to be a referendum this year, that the plaintiff's bar was underwriting and that the physicians lobbying organizations were also fired up with lots of money raised to defend against, but there was a detente, a detente that the California Medical Association got behind, meaning that they're going to raise the caps on pain and suffering, that this was a, um, a bill that was passed uh, by the California legislature, blessed by the California Medical Association, the plaintiff's bar, and um, was about to be signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom. So I only learned about this, um, I guess, several days ago, and we've got a blog post uh, with more details on this coming, but the gist of it is that the 250000 is going to raise up to $500,000 over about a 10-year period and then and then adjust for inflation to follow. But more interesting and I guess more worrisome is that uh, it looks like that number um, is not a static number. So if, if there's some type of death, like negligent or wrongful death, that number actually doubles. You know, instead of being stuck at whatever it's going up, it actually can double, and then you're not limited to one defendant. You can collect the same amount of money separately from more than one defendant. And if I've seen how the plaintiff's bar works, they they will only be too happy to name everyone on the chart. So I bring this up just to kind of get your general opinion as to how this may play out. Um, in, in a sense, it's unfair because I'm asking you to play actuary right now. Um, I think it's probably pretty safe to say that if the law has changed, which, and it's a big change, this is not a tiny change, um, if the law has changed in a big way, 
it's unlikely premiums are coming down. Is that right. a, a fair I statement? Think that's a fair Is that statement. a safe statement? That's a safe statement. I think if you were to look at tort reform and you see the states where they've implemented tort reform, you can follow a trend that premiums uh, for medical malpractice insurance have gone down. And those states where they've um, repealed these caps uh, and amended these caps, you've seen you know, claims follow and then therefore malpractice uh, premiums have gone up. So I think it's pretty safe to say um, that that's what's going to happen in California. And California has been a fairly low premium state in, you know, in comparison to others. So it's been right. a favorable place to purchase insurance for physicians for, for a long time. Um, I understand uh, the issue is that when these caps were put in place, like you said, in 1970s, um, you know, $250,000 was a significant, you know, multiple of the annual household income. And now that multiple is significantly less. So $250,000 is not the same $250,000. And so that's the argument that's to be made and that has been made. And um, to your point, it's a um, something that just happened. We've just learned about it as well. Um, so we're still investigating what what might happen in the state of California. Um, and I would imagine that rates will will take some time to catch up. I don't think you'll see an overnight doubling by any chance because of the uh, the way claims you know, go through our court system, our legal system. And and there is a little bit of a, a, a lag time and in, in reporting, as you mentioned, one year statute of limitations. But still, so we won't really see the, the results of this for for a few years. And as I understand it, uh, the, the cap is slowly increasing year over year um, for the next 10 years. So I would imagine that the premiums um, in the state of California will follow that um, increase year over year um, as the carriers see claims. Well, as long if what I'm hearing you say is that you don't expect near-term catastrophe going off a cliff. Right. I'm going to close on that note. I'm going to close on yes. optimistic notes. Everybody has a has a feel-good sentiment at the end of this uh, podcast. Teddy, I can't thank you Very enough for, for joining us today and taking us through yet another whirlwind tour. Tell people how they can find you to go over not just the things we talked about, namely cyber, um, I think we alluded to employment practice liability insurance, but how to just better understand whether they're with a good carrier getting good rates um, for what they think they're being covered. How do people find you? Well, I can uh, be reached on my email at teddy.gillen, that's G-I-L-L-E-N, at epicbrokers.com. Uh, my cell phone is, you can always reach me on my phone at 404 550 5561. Um, again, I'm with Epic Brokers. And if you have any needs involving insurance, any types of insurance, we're going to have a solution for you. Uh, my team is the is the healthcare team where we're specifically working with physician practices on their medical malpractice, cyber management liability needs. We also have solutions for your, your business, your office, your workers' comp needs. Uh, we have those solutions as well. So um, if, if anything comes up, you know, please feel free to reach out to me in one of those ways, email, call, I'm on LinkedIn, 
Uh, I, I'm on Twitter. I don't use it much, but uh, you know, I can be found on, on a quick Google search as well. And hopefully my information will be in the show notes. We will put that uh, in the in the show notes. And I just want to close with your you and your organization have a national footprint. You're not constrained to just working in one particular state, correct? Correct. We're we're licensed in all states and have clients in all states. Excellent. Teddy, thanks for joining us today. Hope we can catch up again soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Siegel. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.